This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 370th episode of Awards Chatter, Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast, which is brought to you today by Hulu and Neon, presenting... Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg, Kristen Milioti, and J.K. Simmons, for your consideration in all categories. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an Oscar-nominated British filmmaker who reinvented the action genre. He is best known as the director of three installments of the celebrated Bourne franchise, each starring Matt Damon, 2004's The Bourne Supremacy, 2007's The Bourne Ultimatum, and 2016's Jason Bourne around which he has also directed a number of acclaimed, ripped-from-the-headlines dramas about terrorism, 2002's Bloody Sunday, 2006's United 93, 2010's Green Zone with Damon, 2013's Captain Phillips, and 2018's 22 July. In the midst of this impressive run, the New York Times wrote, quote, There's no one in Hollywood right now who does action better, who keeps the pace going so relentlessly without mercy or let-up, scene after hard-rocking scene, close quote. His latest film, Universal's News of the World, is in many ways unlike anything that he has done before. It's a Western, mostly deliberately paced, about a Civil War veteran who makes his living as a traveling newsreader and winds up with a surrogate child along the way. But, like Captain Phillips, it stars Tom Hanks in a great performance, and, like all of this filmmaker's other films, it is artfully made, totally engrossing, and quite moving. I'm talking, of course, about Paul Greengrass. Over the course of our conversation, the 65-year-old and I discussed how his career was born out of work on an investigative news show in Britain, how his path to narrative filmmaking passed through TV docudramas, and how those influenced his later film's trademark visual style of shaky handheld cameras and super-fast editing, why he keeps returning to the subject of terrorism in one form or another, and if that might one day lead him to make a film about the recent insurrection at the United States Capitol, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, good to be here. Thank you. We uh, always begin on this podcast right at the very beginning. If you wouldn't mind just sharing for our listeners where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. I was born in Cheam, England, which is in Surrey. It's just outside London. Uh, it's part of the suburban sprawl of London. And I was born there in 1955. My father was uh, in the Merchant Marine, well, in the Navy and then the Merchant Marine, and my mother was a teacher. Now, you have said in other interviews that there was a trip to the movies, I guess, when you were about 10, that still has an impact on you to this day and the way you do your work. Can you share what that was? Well, my, my, my dad was, uh, I would say, a remote, I guess he was a remote figure. He was at sea most of his life or my early life. So, you know, he'd be away for long, long periods of time. He was quite a solitary man, as so many seafarers are, but, but he did have a great love of David Lean movies. And so when he came back, he would take us for trips to the movies and not just the local movie theatre. He'd take us up to London, to the West End, to the Leicester Square Odeon, which to my childhood eye was an enormous, beautiful, glittering picture palace. And that was where he took me to see Lawrence of Arabia. That was where he went where he took me to see Dr. Zhivago. And when I look back now, those experiences were just profound, you know. And I think it's true, funnily enough, I was watching uh, just last night a documentary about Steven Spielberg, very good one actually as well. And he was talking about watching Lawrence of Arabia as a young boy. And I think that, I think for many directors, movie making is intimately connected, I think, with childhood loneliness I think I think certainly Spielberg was talking about that and I can I could relate to that some family troubles maybe as in my family as in his and so and then the childhood experience of movies I think the two connected so that the movies become a place of escape and a place of wonder and a place of awe and um David Lean said that, I may have the quote slightly wrong, but this was the gist of it, that, that to, to sit as a child in a movie theatre was to 
and to look at the uh, at the light piercing through the theatre at the screen. He felt like a pious boy looking at the light coming through a cathedral window. And I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think that somewhere movie making, the experience of movies, first of all, is, is imprinted indelibly in your childish mind in a really intense way because you as a child you have no you don't access movies with any critical faculties you don't think about what you're watching you just experience it I mean I can still remember where I was when I watched Snow White where I was when I watched Lawrence of Arabia where I was when I watched Sound of Music where I was when I watched Duchy of Argo you know just to pick a few and that, that sort of almost intravenous rush that you get from the cinema as a young boy never leaves you. The experience, the awe of it, the intensity of it, the transportative, if that's the right word, quality of it all, it just, it, it's, it's overwhelming. And so, and this is just my theory about it. I think that somewhere later when you start to make movies, if you're lucky enough, it becomes an attempt to recreate the intensity of the experiences that you had in a, ch a childhood in a theatre and is destined never to, never to ever be able to recreate that intensity. So you... It's like a Sisyphean labour. You roll that boulder up a hill when you make a movie in the, in the desperate hope that you can recreate that intensity. But the truth is, you're fated never to be able to do it. And that makes you go and do it again and again and again, you know, so it becomes a, a sort of psychological <laughs> state, you know what I mean? Oh, but a wonderful very one. very interesting. And uh, now I think that, you, you vaguely referenced there that you shared with Spielberg some, there were some tumultuous aspects of your childhood. And I don't know if this is specifically what you're referring to, but you had said in, in other early interviews that you had been a bit of a quote unquote troubled kid. You were expelled from grammar school, but in the end it, and it was a, a maybe a, a blessing in disguise because you wind up at a private school, which is really where you first discovered creative arts, right? Yeah, I think the I think the difficulties probably lay earlier. My parents, who were both absolutely my father's still alive, though he's very old, my mum's no longer alive, but they're both extremely lovely, nice people. But they were in many wage ways ill matched, you know, save for the fact that they were linked to the sea. And anyone as I did and my brother and sisters did growing up in a seafaring family, it's a particular kind of calling because here's what happens. The, the man goes away. Of course, it was a man always in those days. The man goes away to sea, often for a very long time. I mean, my dad went away to sea when he was 14, 15, you know, and spent his life at sea. And, you know, those trips could be anything from six, nine months, a year, one time, even 18 months. And the woman in the house, they're strong women. 
seafarers' wives. I mean, you go back hundreds of years, it's the same thing. Why? Because they they make all the decisions, they bring up the family, they they run it all, and uh, you know they're not they're not shrinking little women. They're strong, strong women. And my mother was a strong woman, and so was my dad, of course. And then, of course, when they come, when he comes back, when the seafarer comes back from the trip, that's when when it all kicks off. Because who's in charge? You know, struggle for control, clashing, interspersed, of course, with with um, with nice times. But but I think. For me, for my brother, my sisters, we learned and we grew up to live under the, to grow up under a hurricane, you know, if I can put it that way, and and uh, to navigate through life with that clash of opposites. And uh, but but I'll say this for them: they stayed together all their life, and uh, and. I remember as a boy, you know, when my dad came back from a trip, wouldn't matter where he was coming into port, if it was Scotland, Liverpool, you know, in the far north or down south, it wouldn't matter. We'd all be put in the car and we'd all be there. That was the deal. You know, there was a sort of unspoken deal in a seafaring family that that's how it worked. And it... it it's marked me, of course. It, mark, it marks, um, you know, and I think it's gave me an understanding of conflict, and uh, and uh, then later, of course, yeah, school was a bit troublesome for sure. But I got there. Yeah, and uh, obviously got it together enough that you were able to. Uh, Thanks to good teachers, I have to say. Well. Whatever it was, you wind up at Cambridge, which is no easy thing. And uh, and I guess I wonder, as you were arriving there, as you were spending your time there, at that time, if you can take yourself back, what do you remember thinking you were going to do with your life? Well, I think, as I say, I think I was troubled and I acted out, I think, when I was very young, in young teenager, I was pretty, you know, I was pretty rebellious, there's no doubt. I was very lucky when I was sort of kicked out of school to be taken on by a school that my parents could never have afforded to send me. Um, but I think I was thought to be a sort of bright kid who needed. It was a very artistic school, or a school that prized its artistic credentials, as it were. And and it's actually a school that's bred quite a few filmmakers over here, documentary and and uh, otherwise. Um, and um, and I loved the art room. I was troubled at that school too, but I loved the art room. And the art room was where I learned to paint and draw and print make. But it was also where one day I found an old Bolex camera in a drawer at the back in a back room somewhere, I can't even remember where it was, but, and I pestered the art teacher and, you know, I want to shoot a film and, which is pretty unusual in those days, and he got me some 16mm film and I made my first film, which was a terrible sort of Bunuel-esque horror film, you know, with dolls and Indian ink and scissors and, but, 
But I remember vividly as a, as a sort of mid-teenager a sense of peace, I can only put it that way, as I kind of got into, I mean, I made it with a friend of mine who went off to art school, um, and just the whole idea of writing this little script and, you know, setting the lights with angle poises, just like this one here, and, you know, and shooting the thing and learning how to work that camera, and then, you know, and I found it, for a kid who found it difficult to fit in, who was a bit averse to institutions and a bit averse to to sort of polite society, you know, I, I, I didn't fit in and I was, you know, bolshy and difficult and rebellious and angry and hurting, probably. Well, I was, there's no doubt I was. I found a peace about it. I found I lost myself in it in a way that I didn't with schoolwork. And, and that was it. That was the thing for me. And, and uh, that got me through. And so even as you went to Cambridge, that was sort of your, you had that idea that once I get through here, I'm going to somehow continue to produce content. I said, I watched this Steven Spielberg documentary. He said, I knew, this may not be the exact quote, but I think this was pretty accurate. He said, I knew then at some point when he was a late teenager, he said, I knew then I was going to make my life in movies or die trying. (laughs) Well, a bit different to be a British kid than an American kid. The movies is an industry, whereas in Britain it's television really rather than movies. But... You know, I, I, I felt the same way. I was going to try and do something with cameras and moving pictures. You know, that was going to be what I was going to try and do or, or die trying. So tell us about that. People in the States may not be as familiar uh, as people in the UK, but World in Action was sort of your guys, I think, version of 60 Minutes. I don't know. Is that a fair comparison? A little bit. It was it was somewhat like that, but a bit but different in important ways. It was it was first of all it, yes, it was commercial television. I went to work for a company called Granada who made World in Action, and it was a top ten show. So to that extent, but it it was deeply rooted in the British documentary movement. In fact, the title World in Action, Granada bought from John Grierson, who's really the grandfather of the of the documentary for John Grierson. He bought the title from him because Grierson thought that the purpose of a documentary was to uh, observe, quote, the world in action, which I've never forgotten and I think is a great phrase. And so World in Action, the programme, was an odd sort of wasn't as polite as 60 Minutes. It was much more down and dirty. It had elements of, you know, it did have, it was a marriage of documentary filmmaking, journalism, reportage, and a certain amount of sort of agitprop 60s politics, you know, anti, anti-establishment politics. And in Britain, what was important about it was that it wasn't in London. It was based in Manchester, uh, close to Liverpool, you know, it was part of the flowering of 
I suppose you'd call it working class culture in Britain in the 60s and and it's I loved it I loved the company and it it was the first place really where I went where I was allowed to be me I was allowed to do what I wanted and encouraged to do what I wanted and and given a tremendous amount of freedom as a very young man well and just to just to set it up and correct me if this is wrong but essentially you go to Granada not to work there but to work in covering sports and as a, my first job was covering sports right. exactly but you essentially happened upon a scandal which brought you to the to the no, well, well, action, right? not, not exactly quite like that what actually happened was i world in action as i say was a kind of cult show well it was a popular it was a top 10 show but it was like it was where the action was you know if you were at all troublesome and bullshit, that's where you wanted to be, and I certainly wanted to be there. But how was I going to get there? Well, then they they were looking for somebody to work in their sports department. Well, I love sports, so I went straight up there. But in fact, I had just written a letter about uh, when I graduated from Cambridge. I wrote a letter to Granada. I can't remember who to, but, you know, dear Mr. Granada... All my life has been but a preparation for working on World in Action, you know, blah, 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 blah. Will you give me a job? Of course, I never got a reply, or if I did, it would have been thanks, but no thanks. Anyway, some months later, you know, they're looking for a sports, you know, runner, effectively, researcher. So I write, you know, dear Mr. Granada, all my life has been but a preparation for working in your sports department. So I'm summoned up for an interview because in those days you used to have an interview, you know, it was all very, very serious and formal and proper. And when I walked in, the guy who was the programme controller of Granada held up the two letters and said, kindly, kindly explain the difference between these two. I went, what? Anyway, they, they gave me the job. And a year later, I joined Granada and uh, World in Action and I was very, very young because I found this story about Manchester United actually, which was then of course still now a very famous football club. It was about corruption inside there. And uh, that really was my ticket into to World in Action where I had a when I look back now, an amazing eight, nine years of of that was really my education. I mean I I travelled relentlessly and made I don't know 25, 30 odd films and they were you know you'd, it was literally like you know you'd come in and they'd say right you're going to the Middle East tomorrow come back with a film you're going to Northern Ireland tomorrow come back with a film you know and you you know I went to all the difficult parts of the world and saw the dark and difficult things that the world had in the 80s and both in Britain and overseas and your job was to document the world in action. That was your job. And and that's what I did. And it taught me everything. It taught me how to write. It taught me how to shoot quickly. It taught me how to cut quickly. And like any business, you've got to pay your dues. You've got to serve your time. And you've got to learn how to do it. Make your mistakes. And uh, that's what I did. Well, and this seems like it was about 1978 to 1987. Uh, so there there was plenty of dues paying. And then at the end of that period, I guess maybe this was just coincidentally at the end, or I don't know, maybe this is why you left. But there is between that and, and the making of your first feature in 89, 
there was this kind of interesting thing that might have been your first association with anything spy related as far as I know, which is that you essentially ghost wrote this book spy catcher, the memoir of a of a MI five agent, which sold a lot of copies, caused a lot of controversy. And I guess I just wonder, you know, how does this fit in with everything else in your in your mind? Well, it was a great adventure. I mean I had made quite a few world in actions about sort of espionage and spies and so forth. So I was sort of interested in that area. And, of course, in those days, it was very, very secretive, not like it is today. And um, I got on the hunt for this old man. He was an old man who'd gone to Tasmania, actually, the other side of the world, who knew the whole story of he'd hunted Philby, Burgess, McLean, all those guys. You know, he'd seen the dark the dark hypocrisies and secrets of the British establishment, essentially. I mean, he was a damaged person, and I think he was a pretty much a functioning alcoholic. He was angry and bitter, but he had a great, great story to tell, and I went out, and uh, the first thing I did was make a world in action about him and interviewed him, and that, that caused a bit of a stink, and then we did the book together, and then... then the roof fell in because Mar- Margaret Thatcher took against it and it became a, an 18-month sort of cause celebre, I suppose. But, um, but it was a great adventure to have as a young man and sort of in the end represented the end of my sort of documentary days in a weird way. I, I had been feeling, I mean, I was getting on towards 30 then. I was... I was... I, I had always had a secret dream to make movies, films, but I would never have been able to admit to it in public because it would have been so outlandish. So that's the difference between Britain and America. Britain was all about television. We didn't really have a film industry. Was the thing that changed essentially when Channel 4 started Film 4? It was, and I was one of the, you know, that early group who got a break I would never have been allowed to make drama I remember I used to pester Granada and they say oh no 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 you can't do that you know and I had to leave and I had this idea had this story actually it was a true story about a young soldier the Falklands War I had been in Argentina actually during the Falklands early part of the Falklands War which was pretty hairy and um when I got back, there was a story of this young boy who was 18 years old, who on the last night of the war, when the fighting was most intense, had gone missing, presumed dead. And he came from a small community up in the north. And he was, uh, although they never found the body, he was buried with full military honours as a hero. And then 42 days later... He stumbled out, after the war was all over, he stumbled out of the mist down to a military unit and said, oh, I got lost. I got lost. I've been living. He'd found a shack and lived on some old Argentine military supplies and so on and so forth. And Britain in 1982 was in a very febrile place. It was a country that had lost its way 
Margaret Thatcher had a particular view of where it was going to go and the Falklands War was part of it. It sort of redeemed its honour with blood, you know? And this final imperial spasm was a passport to revival. Now, I'm not saying that it was wrong. I think what Argentina did was quite wrong. But but how these... I mean, a war's a terrible thing, but the triumphalism, the jingoism, it was like a, a fix, an intravenous fix of ultra-nationalism was injected into the the country. And by the way, if you want to understand where Brexit came from, 82 Falklands War, you know, it was, it never went away, that, 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 that triumphalist, we're back, you know, and, and when he came, when he was brought back, he was brought back, of course, it was clear immediately that he'd probably run away. He was a young boy. He was 18 years old, barely, you know. Who knows what had happened in the middle of that hell inferno, you know. But something happened that he got separated and then probably was too frightened to get back. Who knows? We'll never know. What is clear is he was greeted by design as a, con as a return. The hero came back from the dead, he became. And I thought this was all very interesting because, of course... When he got back to his unit, he was absolutely destroyed, I mean, physically and mentally. So that was what the film was about. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting way of... 1989, Resurrected. That was, I guess, very early David Thewlis, who people will Very uh, early David Thewlis and incredibly early me. And, uh, you know, you... You know, it was a, a, ju a juvenile film, if I can put it that way. I think it was a strong had a strong point of view as a story, but my capacity to tell it, you know, I thought well, there were some intermittent good pieces in it, but but it marked the moment when I moved. That was it. I never, I never went back after that. I mean, I started to write and direct and really learn my craft because I was used to shooting documentary. I understood that. Shooting drama has a different language and you have to kind of master it. And I spent, you know, that's when I started making... And I, I sort of pretty soon gravitated. I was never interested in sort of episodic television. I, I got into a groove of writing and directing my own very small films on television. Well, and I, I want to actually ask you about that because essentially for the next 10 years... You're doing these television films. I'll just mention a few names if people want to track them down. I, I imagine that's uh, uh, some will. The one that got away is 1996. The Fix is 1997. The one that I know you're less a fan of is The Theory of Flight in 1998 um, with Helena Bonham Carter and Kenneth Branagh. But basically for 10 years... Murder of Stephen Lawrence. Murder. Well, the that's the what I want to build up to that because that comes out 10 years after Resurrected and... It sounds like prior to the murder of Stephen Lawrence, which is this uh, TV film about a racist killing in London, if some of our listeners are not familiar, there was still some frustration about where this was all going for you. It seems like from things you've said and that there that the 
in some ways the the discovery, and I, I actually think uh, you were saying that quote the films don't look how I see them in my head close quote during that ten year period. What was the difference? There was this the unknowing camera, which so many of us now associate with your films. This sort of docudrama uh, visual aesthetic where the camera's moving and maybe just turning as if it's catching somebody in the middle of doing something, all of that. How did you stumble upon that and sort of now discover the way you wanted to make films? Well, as I say, I, I look, first of all, you have to learn the grammar, the language of movie making or, you know, dr- dramatic storytelling, let's call it that. And I did do that. And I could do it perfectly well. I always worked, you know, but I would write these films and they would never quite turn out as I saw them as in my mind's eye. And I remember when I made the one that got away, which was about a special forces raid inside Iraq. It was a kind of fairly disastrous special forces raid, but it bore on on some of the issues. The first, this is Gulf War One, 1919. And again, I thought it was a very powerful story and I was quite pleased with how I'd written it. When it came to the making of it, it was pretty good. It, you know, it did well. But it, I remember, I have a vivid memory of being out in the desert in, we shot it in South Africa, actually, in the Namibian desert, which is almost a perfect match for Iraq. And... Um, of course, you've got the problem of lighting a desert landscape. That's very tricky. And a special forces patrol of whatever it was, eight guys, you know. And there's a scene where they had to work. They got lost, effectively, and they were trying to work off this map. And there was a scene, I can't remember how the scene went, but it was a scene where the, where the, the unity of the patrol started to break down as things started to go wrong. And... You know, you had the problem, the technical problem of shooting an eight-way dialogue scene that I'd written at night where you're lighting it in the desert so it's all moonlight and we didn't have much money. And and I just remember, in my mind, I saw this flowing, uh, you know, the, 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 the unity of this patrol starting to break down into resentment and and fear and and rage, you know, and it didn't. And then we it was a night shoot. And we broke at whatever it was two in the morning, and I just remember staying out on set. And at one point, I smacked my head against a truck like this, going, "Fuck, fuck's sake!" You know what I mean? Bang! You know, fucking hell! Why? Excuse me. Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's you know what the fuck? <laughs> fuck! You know, in a rage. You know, and smacking my head. And um, look, I got through the film, and the film, yeah, it wasn't too bad. But that feeling, I now know what it was. I didn't. I was looking for a way through to the film through my own script to the film. A, a script is a great thing. And I've been lucky enough to work with some wonderful writers and, you know, I've also tried to write a few myself or more than a few. The key is that the film lies in a realm beyond the screenplay. 
And you have to dare to go to that place to make a film, truly make a film, to truly find your voice. And I hadn't found the courage, I hadn't found the technical, maybe, confidence, the maturity to find my voice, my particular way to do it. But I think that that night, that raging kind of fury that I felt towards myself was probably what powered me through and the experience of making a film that I think, I hope, is probably the only one that I really think of mine that definitively did not work, which was Theory of Flight, because I was ill-matched to the subject matter and I don't think I had anything to bring to it. And it was unhappy in many different ways for me. Uh, yeah, it was okay, but 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 out of that whole experience, and I think this is in, you know, and I occasionally go to film school and talk to young directors. You have to develop a confidence, a technical ability, and a courage, and an experience of what something not working feels like to get to the place where you then take no prisoners. And that's where I got to after that. It's like, okay, whatever these films have been up to this point, and they've all been in their way fine. It's not like they were all disasters. I'm on the contrary, you know, they, they were, I was worked and I, I had a good time making them. But the me that was struggling to come out came out then in the fury of, okay, this next one that I do, which felt very personal to me because it was this attack, this racist attack, Stephen Lawrence murder happened not very far from where I grew up. I felt I knew that world. And of course it later became a great cause celebre in Britain, but it wasn't then. I just wanted to tell the story about a young teenager who went out and never came back. Um, his parents trying to find answers. And and I was lucky to have a friend of mine produce it who, who I think understood that this is, that I got to the place where I wasn't going to turn back and I was going to shoot as I saw it, as I understood it. And I was going to get the actors to play it as I saw it in my head. I had enough confidence by then to go, fuck it, it's going to be like this and I'm going to go for it. And how did you, where where did the idea though of the, you felt, all right, I come from documentaries, this is the way we've I, shot them. I'm going to go back to where, oh, okay. you know, I was going to go back, I was going to, I had, un, I had learnt how to classically shoot, but it wasn't truly me. What I had to do was marry that with where I'd come from which is from the real world, from, from being in a dangerous place, whether it was the streets of Northern Ireland or, or Central America or the Middle East. You know, you'd shoot in a certain way, you know, with a certain kind of urgency, you know, uh, and, and you wouldn't know where the camera was going to go and everything would be led by that. And then that led me to encourage the actors to play it in that way. So, and somewhere you end up where I always needed to be, which is in the middle 
of the camera and the, the actors saying, this is how it's going to be, this is what I want. And, and, and it was quite scary, of course, because the rushes don't look like conventional rushes. I don't really think my rushes do look... I mean, now it's... I think a lot of people now shoot a bit more like that, but in those days they didn't. And, and I remember the first day of shooting going for it, and I was really psyched up. And Mark Redhead, who produced that movie, about three o'clock in the afternoon, I started to panic inside. Because with television, the schedules are so short, you have to cover the thing. There's no going back. That's it. And I suddenly thought, oh, I mean, what happens if this doesn't cut together? I mean, I'm done. That's it. I'm done. You know what I mean? And I, rem and I started to panic. And I started to go, well, now we need to reverse. And now we need to do this. And I remember Mark coming up to me in the after late afternoon saying, you got to go for it. Go for it. And he's a one of my oldest friends. And, and it was like, okay, let's go for it. And we went for it. And that was that. And that was really about finding your voice. Yeah. And uh, eventually recognized with... Uh Best Single Drama BAFTA Award, and you were on your way. So that brings us up to the movie that I think internationally sort of really put you on the map, which comes out in 2002, Bloody Sunday, $4.5 million, again, a TV film, but played at Sundance in Berlin and won awards there. These were, it was treated as a film film, not a TV film. And just to what remind we call people, a, what we call a hybrid in the UK, we yeah. used to call them hybrid, bit, bit of both. And uh, just to, you know, contextualize it for listeners, reconstruction of the 72 violence at pro-IRA civil rights march in Northern Ireland, which you and others... Not, are... not, not, not pro-IRA, pro-civil rights. Pro-civil rights, excuse much, me. Yeah. Very much not pro-IRA. Sorry, that's what I, I misspoke there. Um, which you and others have described as the darkest day of the Troubles and the great turning point in the history of the Troubles, which essentially took a low-intensity conflict into a full-fledged civil war. And I think that, so $4.5 million budget here, I think the probably the largest you'd had up to that time, financed through the National Lottery, and basically it sounds like modeled on some of the, the great docudrama-style films that had come before that you love and I love uh, Battle of Algiers, Z, Z, that kind of mode. So I guess I just wonder, did you feel that now having sampled the way of working that you did on Murder of Stephen Lawrence, you're applying it now to this one, a lot of real people, not just only actors, the whole, it seems like this was the first time that all the pieces of what we now think of as a Paul Green, Greengrass film were in place. Well, I would say that happened on Stephen Lawrence, but but what was different about Bloody Sunday was it got noticed internationally. But I think the the pieces coming into place was definitely the film before. With Bloody Sunday, it was I mean it was deeply rooted in. I had made a I'd done a lot of work in Northern Ireland earlier on in my life. You know when the the troubles were very bad, it, they were coming to. A, I wouldn't say an end, but they were coming to towards the end. The piece was being built in the late 90s and I wanted to make a film that 
summed up my experiences of Northern Ireland. I'd spent a lot of time there. I knew it very well. And that was the great addressed issue, really. And if we were to make a piece, that also had to be dealt with. And in the end, it's the healing power of storytelling, you know, which is part of News of the World. And uh, I also wanted to make a film that was both a veneration of Battle of Algiers, which is obviously a film that's probably influenced me more than any other film, but also a direct political challenge in a comradely way to to Pontecorvo, who obviously I admired immensely as a as a filmmaker, but I had very different politics. And that was this, that... Essentially, the message of Battle of Algiers is that in the issue of the colonial struggle, the, the colonially oppressed, their uprising cannot be impeded. You know, that history will always see the oppressed rise up and throw the colonialists out. That's really the message of Battle of Algiers, and you see it in that final scene at the end where they, you know, they emerge from the Casbah... And, you know, you feel that, that that is a rightful end to what's what had gone on in Algiers, Algeria. Um, and that was his truth. And that film was made in, I want to say, 65, 66. It was made before, before the Troubles in Northern Ireland emerged in 68. And it was made before... Um, Black September, you know, before the PLO uh, uprising and before all of that, you know. And so, and I was a bit younger and I had grown up seeing a lot of these places at, at close hand, whether, as I say, whether it was Central America or the Middle East or Northern Ireland particularly or South Africa where I spent a lot of time, you know, when it, in the days when it was apartheid South Africa and through... And I had a different view about these conflicts, which is that the modern conflicts were not those that were simply the imperial conflicts where the imperial country had gone and occupied, the you know, colonised and then were kicked out and went home. That the modern conflicts were between essentially two tribes who inherited, who, who inhabited the same piece of land and claimed it as their own. Those were the modern, toxic, violent, destructive conflicts. And the problem is that the, the Pontecorvo view of history doesn't apply because in Northern Ireland, you can't say to the Protestants of Northern Ireland, well, it's time for you to abandon this conflict and go home because it is their home. So what that leads you to is the civil rights movement. It leads you to what happened in Northern Ireland in 68, which is the emergence of the civil rights movement, which said the only way that we can reconcile two nationalisms in the same territory is a rights-based solution, a rights-based peace that both traditions can buy into. Now, that was what emerged in Northern Ireland in 68, 69 to 72, and that's what was destroyed when the British Army killed those people in 72. And the IRA inherited that, and the stage 
was then left for the British Army and the IRA to fight until we get to the late 90s when the civil rights solution emerged as the basis of the peace. And, and that's your movie, uh, Omar, which you wrote. And, and, yeah, and it's the basis of peace in, you know, what was formerly Yugoslavia and Kosovo. It's the same, you know. In the end, it's the only way out of these intractable, intractable problems, I believe. So that was why I made that film. And a veneration of him, but also a dialogue with him where I believe different things to him. And and that's what I expressed in that film. At about the same time that you're now registering on everyone's radar with uh, with Bloody Sunday um, internationally, maybe to certainly to an extent, greater extent than ever before. No, no, I had never been registered internationally <laughs> at all, at all. Yeah, well, no, Meanwhile, yeah. Uh, a movie is registering internationally called The Born Identity, which Correct. we should say, just to be clear, this was because I even in my own memory, I, I, you know, as I kind of, you know, the chronology of all this is sometimes hard to keep track. This is a movie, I believe 2002. That was Doug Lyman directing it. It was not expected to be anything. And, it and he did a great job, did a great job and really uh grew at the box office in a way that's unusual, became this big And he never, he never gets the credit either, I think, that he deserves. Well, it, it's very nice of you to say, and I mean, this created a hunger, an appetite, obviously, on the part of Universal for sequels. So I wonder if you can just share, how did you first come to their attention from what you understand and, and vice versa? And were you uh, immediately interested even when when the possibility well, arose? It's a, fu- a, a, a series of quite funny stories. First of all, after Bloody Sunday, I felt I had got to the end of a sort of chapter of work. You know, I felt I'd done, I'd, I'd, I'd got to, a, you know, filmmaking is like making music. I felt I'd work through some music, if I put it that way, and I needed to do something different, but I didn't know what. I certainly had no sense that Bloody Sunday was going to be what it was, but I remember feeling as I was cutting it that, that, um, that I needed to do something different. And then when it, you know, as it's, as you kindly said it, you know, won prizes at Sundance in Berlin, it, it, it made things different. Suddenly I had options that I'd never, ever, ever dreamt of. Eric Fellner, you know, runs Working Title. He, he, he and I joked once. He said, if, if you had picked 100 directors in the UK, not that there probably were 100 directors, but let's suppose there were 100 directors in, U- in the UK in 2002 and said, which is the one that is going to, you know, break through in Hollywood? I probably would have been about either 99 or 100 on that list based on the films I made, the subjects I picked. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so it was, it was, but, you know, I, I, I was, well, then that summer Born Identity came out and I think I was either cutting Bloody Sunday or something anyway. My wife and I, I found her up one day, we, we, I finished work a little bit early and we had young children. It's like, we 
we've got to just go out on our own and have a bit of us time. Let's go to the movies. We hadn't been to the movies for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, we got somebody to watch the kids. And what are we going to watch? Well, there's this movie, Born Identity. I don't know what it is, but it sounds like fun. Let's go and see that. And I, it must have been at a time when I was thinking it was probably likely that I could make a film in America because of the success of Bloody Sunday. And uh, that's right, yeah, Bloody Sunday was finished because I definitely had that in my mind that it was an option. And I remember we went out and had something to eat after. I said to you, you know, if I'm going to go and make a film in Hollywood, I want to make a Hollywood movie. I don't want to go and make a film like I've been making in Britain. I want to do a proper big-ass Hollywood movie, you know, and see if I can. Not knowing, of course, then... Life being what it is and serendipity being what it is, a few months later I get a call saying, would you be interested in doing the follow-up to Born Identity? I said, absolutely I would be. Will you come out and meet Frank Marshall? Who I obviously didn't know. So yes, I got on the plane, feeling very excited, going to Los Angeles, you know. and uh, Had you been before? been sort of as a tourist, yeah. you know, before, like, you know, some years, but I didn't know it at all. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know it and I didn't know anybody there. And I was put in a hotel, actually, I was put in shutters, actually, uh-uh. uh, which I now know is shutters. Then it was just, oh, Christ, this is beautiful. Yeah. I love this. <laughs> I'm liking this. And I arrived, whatever it was, seven, eight o'clock at night, and I was to present myself at Universal Studios the next morning, uh, whatever time it was let's say 11 o'clock, I think it was the morning, uh, and I had to get myself there. So, of course, me thinking Los Angeles like any other city, you just get in a cab and go, I order a taxi, not realising that, you know, that's a different sort of deal, and I say, can I go to Universal Studios? So they take me to Universal Studios and I get out, and, of course, it's the Universal theme park. Oh, no. And I go to the front, I say... I'm looking for Mr. Frank Marshall at Universal Studios. They look at me like I'm an absolute <laughs> idiot. Anyway, by now it's like 10 to 11 and I'm in until finally I, I unpick it all and realise I'm in the wrong place. I'm like two miles away from, from the offices. So I then turn into Jason Bourne. I start <laughs> like this and it's like 20 past 11, 25 past 11. Anyway, I finally turn up. I was so loud. I thought, well, I'm definitely not getting this job. <laughs> and Frank was... <laughs> I came in sweating. <laughs> He said, well, I've only got five minutes and I've got to go. (laughs) So so, uh, we talked for five minutes and then they put me in a room to read the treatment. And I thought, well, I'm definitely not getting this job. But lo and behold, Frank, being the wonderful man he is, forgave me and gave me the job. (laughs) And we'll just note here, it was a proper Hollywood movie. As you say, $75 million budget. A uh, big star, obviously, still in Matt Damon, all kinds of stunts and explosions and all of that. And I just I guess I want to ask, because this seems to be a central question to the success of that you've had, not only with the Bourne films, but elsewhere. Why do you think you and Damon have hit it off to the extent that you did? It seems like from the beginning, I, I had read that there was a point very early on that because of concerns about the script, he was going to pass on the sequel. But you kind of talked them into sticking around. And I imagine that might have been the, there was something about that conversation that uh, instilled faith in each other. 
look, we got on... I mean, we met... Actually, I went out to Prague. He was shooting a movie out in Prague. And uh, it was a funny story, because I was very broke at the time. And uh, I got to the airport, they'd give me a ticket, and I put my card in the thing to get some cash. And I couldn't get any cash out, so I... (laughs) At about 20 bucks or, you know, 10 pounds or whatever, 20 pounds in my pocket in cash. And I had to go out and meet. And he said, oh, you know, we'll meet for dinner. And I'm sitting the whole time thinking, if I'm going to have to pick up the tab for dinner, I'm absolutely <laughs> done for. <laughs> and obviously I couldn't tell him, you know, I was trying to. But anyway, we we had one bottle of red wine and then a second bottle of red wine. And we, we had a wonderful night. And it went on till late. And, uh, uh and he very graciously paid the bill, otherwise I would have been done for. But uh, but we got him great. He's one of the... He's just a brother. He's a brother, mate. He's a brother and he's a brilliant actor and a brilliant... And, you know, though they're very hard. Of course, I didn't know what I know now, you know. But it was such an education to me. I didn't know whether... I would be able to make a film in Hollywood in the mainstream that felt like my film. I thought it was going to be a one-way ticket. I thought I'd perhaps fall out with people and come home, but that's okay. You know, I, I was, com- I was, you know, a mature man by then. I knew who I was, and I suppose that gave me an uh, an advantage. I wasn't needing it in the same way, perhaps, that it makes you vulnerable. And I had. I had a great relationship with Matt and and two other things that you need in this business to really get through difficult moments. One, a great producer, Frank, who indulged me, indulged Matt and me, really, but but was wise. You know, you knew if, if it was an idea and it wasn't going to fly with Frank, it... It wasn't really one worth, you know, because we'd have mad ideas, you know. And uh, and he was calm and he would, you know, he, he took the best of us and got us there. And the other is Universal. They were great and they had, they believed in us, even though I'm sure sometimes I infuriated them, but they believed in us. Well, and I'll tell you a story yeah. about that if you're interested. Sure. When we first put that, you know, it was difficult. Making franchise movies is difficult because you very rarely have a script that's right, and that's no reflection on the writers involved. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a little bit of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. You know, you start with an idea, and that's, you know, and then you you have to collectively work at it, which is why that sort of producerial figure is so important, you know. But you also need a studio to have real courage. And that film, we shot it, we did some reshoots and we tested it. And it tested okay. You know, all right. Not great. Not as good as they wanted. Not a disaster, but not as good as they wanted. And I think we did some reshoots then and did some more cutting and got it pretty much where it was with the exception that we didn't have the right end. And our scores went down. And I never forget, we were in whatever theatre it was somewhere in Arizona or somewhere, or maybe it was San Diego, I can't remember where it was. 
And, you know, you're sitting there and the test audience does their thing and then all the executives go and huddle off to the side. And that's a quite a lonely moment when you're a director and you kind of know the scores have gone down, but you haven't seen all the details. And, and it's like... And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I don't really need to be that stressed because, A, I know I've done my best. B, I actually like the film. I think there's something wrong with the end, but I like it. And I can be relaxed, you know, not relaxed, but I, I, looking at them, I could see the pressure on a studio executive. You know, when you've got, a lot of money in play, you've spent a lot of money and you need the movie to work and the scores have gone down. And I'll never forget, Stacey Snyder, who was then running Universal, and Frank came over, got everybody together, and she said, OK, tonight... I'll never forget it, it's a wonderful much. She said, tonight we have not had the result that the good work that you guys have all done has deserved but we believe in this film and we think it's going to be just fine and we're going to stick with it. Don't you worry. We need just, we're in search of an idea to fix that end. And we and I thought, you know, that is fair play. You know, I really admired them as a group, you know, and you, it builds, you know, a, a, a sense of, of pride and a sense of admiration that people under proper pressure lots of millions of dollars on the line. They don't throw you under the bus. They back the film. And that's the story of Hollywood you don't often do. And then George Nolfi had the idea for the end. I remember Matt phoning me up and said, hey, I just spoke to George. He's got this great idea for the end. It's like, what? I went, oh, my God, that's great. Literally, we phoned Frank. I, I want to say it was the next day we were on the plane. We shot it the day after. We cut it in. We test it again, and the scores went. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And Frank came out and said, "I think we're just going to be just fine." Wow. <laughs> so well, we were. let let me go back one second though, because another person who you have, I think, starting with that film all the way through Jason Bourne, collaborated very closely with was Christopher Rouse, your editor. And I wonder if you guys had, you know, you know the thing that you're, you that movie and. And all the stuff that you've done has been really uh, credited for changing in in terms of action films is just a greater sense of adrenaline and you're in the moment. And I mean, here's one thing the New York Times had said that was that you you were tremendously effective at, quote, suggesting the adrenaline rush of a fugitive who has no time to look around, but also suggests Jason's quick thinking, close quote. You literally have Brian Cox in that movie saying to Joan Allen, cut to the chase, Pam, when she's just even talking. Um, and so there was there was this great sense of that. But were, is it true that you guys were shooting every scene two different ways, your way with the moving camera and all of that, and then also the conventional way in case they were not going to go for that? Yeah, definitely it was, yeah. It was, it was. <laughs> And, and that did was you- pretty stressful. It was pretty <laughs> stressful. And that's where, where, you know, you need to... But that's why they're a great studio and that's why Frank's a great producer because in the end, part of what makes a franchise movie, a good franchise movie work, is that you've got to dare to 
get the best ideas out there and be prepared to see the best ideas and then go, okay, that's the one that works. And, you know, that's what I mean. They indulged me. I think I brought that to the table maybe, encouraged uh, by everybody. And Chris Rouse was an absolutely key part of that because Chris and I met on that movie and we were straight away saw film in the same way. I think he was looking to work with a director who set him free in that way to explore. And we saw that same road. And I think we went down it, as I say, as a group. I don't want to, it was, it wasn't, you know, I would, it was never the case that I wanted to go down that road, no one else did. You know, I mean, I do remember the first, in those days, of course, not nowadays you don't, but in those days you used to show rushes, you know, project rushes. We were at Babelsberg Studios and, uh, I remember sitting in my first day's rushes and seeing Frank and Pat Crowley in front of me because, you know, I was in one place and I could hear Frank going, what the hell, why does he keep doing that the camera? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> I was going, oh, my God. But, but he, you know, and it was a debate through that film. Did I need to do it that way? And I wanted to. And But they never said you must not. They just... And I get it. You, they didn't know it was going to work and they wanted insurance. And wouldn't you just if you're spending tens of millions of dollars? I get it, you know. But in the end, we uh, we were a happy we were a happy group hunting down a big commercial movie and we were anxious to make our marks, all of us. And And I remember it as joyously creative we, we 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 felt we were doing something that hadn't been done before well and and i think the other thing that should not be overlooked is that so born supremacy then uh three years later born ultimatum you did but in between you've got united 93 and 2006 which i'm gonna of course ask you about in a moment but the the point is that all of these came out during the bush administration years you know i don't think for a stu- too much not too many studio films are gonna address divisive politics or tactics or whatever, but you guys are dealing with rendition, waterboarding, extra legal surveillance, all this stuff in the Bourne films. And I know that you, I guess literally Bourne Supremacy comes out as this huge success and you're back with Stacey Snyder about, you know, what do you want to do next now that you're a, a hit filmmaker? And this is where you, with a, a moment where you could have done anything probably, decide you want to do United ninety three, the first nine eleven, the first major film to, about nine eleven. Not even five years after this had happened, the one, the one hijacked plane that didn't reach its target, at a time when people, you know, were still so cautious about nine eleven, they're CGIing out the twin towers from movies as if that would have traumatized somebody. I guess I just wonder, you know, is there a personal? interest in politics or terrorism beyond, you know, we'd seen it obviously with Bloody Sunday, but that that in that moment you would choose to do United 93 knowing, hey, I'm a I'm a British guy. I'm going to probably take some flack for tackling this most American of stories. I guess I just wonder what was going through your mind at that moment? Well, I think a whole number of things. First of all, politically, I'm quite moderate. You know, I've been a member of the Labour Party, which would be like your Democratic Party all, all my adult life, but I've always been in the moderate wing. 
you know, I'd be backing Biden if I was an American. I wouldn't have been a Bernie Sanders man, say. No disrespect to Bernie Sanders. That's just not my politics. I was, uh, I backed Gordon Brown. I didn't back Jeremy Corbyn in, in the British context. So politically, I don't have any anxiety about being a wild-eyed radical, you know, and I didn't then. Secondly, you know, I had a... I was a man by then, you know, I was grown up, I had children, and I had seen a lot of political violence in my time, up close. And when you've seen bodies and people being killed and, you know, you go and film in a place like, I don't know, Guatemala, and you go out in the airport road and the bodies are laid out in the morning because the death squads work and they always lay the bodies out the testicles are laid on top of the face and you know you do a lot of that sort of stuff in your life you or Northern Ireland I'd made Oma by then which was really the closing event of the troubles I felt I had something to say about this event that had changed our world, and by the way, many, many, it was the worst terrorist attack in the UK's history too. And many British people died, not as many, of course, by far as, as US citizens. But, you know, this was an attack on America, but it was an attack on democracy and the West. And I felt that as a citizen, as a filmmaker, I wanted to have my say. I thought it was important that we talked about it. And uh, I felt, I suppose, that I had the discretion and the skill set to be able to do it in a, in a, in a responsible way. You know, I felt an, a confidence about my responsibility to the truth and to the facts and to the human situation. And I went and asked them. That's really the first thing that I did. And we went and we met every single family and asked them, had they not wanted us to, I would never have made that film. And here's the thing, I've made quite a few films about political violence one way and another. And all are different, but there are some common elements. One of the common elements is that those of us who are not caught up in terrorism, political violence, whatever you want to call it, we, after a moment, whether it's a week, a month, two months, of being shocked, we always want to get on with our lives. We want normality to resume. Those whose lives have forever changed because they've lost a son or a daughter or a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, whatever, their lives have changed forever. There's no going back to normal. And so they're left sort of voiceless after a while because society wants to get on. And whereas they're impelled despite themselves on journeys towards meaning, whatever their politics, whatever their beliefs, somewhere they say, what? why did this happen? What does this mean? Let's speak about it. And I found that again and again and again, that desire to be heard, that desire. And that's what underpins 
whether it's Bloody Sunday or Omar or 93 or 22 July, the film in Norway, um, you just have to go to the families and say, would you like me to make a film? And if they say, no, you don't. If they say, we would like you to, you say, okay, let's talk about what that might be. It'll be an attempt to explore its meanings without imposing meanings on it. I don't. And that's, I think, if, if those films work, it's because I've managed, that's what I try anyway, I try to do is to take myself out of it and to try and explore as honestly as I can with that group of actors and with those colleagues, filmmaking colleagues, what does this mean? What does what does this event mean in our what is and what it means until going back to United Ninety Three specifically? It didn't mean maybe what politicians wanted it to mean. What it meant was how fragile is our system of democracy, how fragile it is. And you see it in that beautifully latticed air traffic control system. It's like a membrane that once pierced savagely, brutally, and we tried as best we could as a group to... You can never create exactly what happened, but you can get to a place where it must have been something like this. Well, and it's amazing. You, I believe the hijacking occurs in real time. It's shot by Barry Aykroyd, who I know you... You worship Ken Loach. He was his longtime cinematographer. And then in terms of just respect for the families, there's no Matt Damon in this movie. Everybody is sort of an unrecognizable uh, person who's equally, you know, important in their own way there. And uh, in the end, you get your Best Director Oscar nomination, recognizing that this was so well done. And then back to Bourne, of course, with Bourne Ultimatum, where... You talk about the challenges of franchise filmmaking. I, I really understand that this one was coming together as it went along. And yet, with a $110 million budget, still grossed $442 million. You have these amazing chase sequences that are up there with any of them at Waterloo train station or New York at the end. And I guess at the end of that film, your, your second one in three years, you and Damon both say, it's we're drained. I, the, the story we've I, he knows he knows his story. He knows who he is. Where is there to go? We're we're out. And doesn't mean you guys are done because the next thing was the was Green Zone, which people kind of tried to be cute and said this is born in Iraq. But I know you I think that movie. Look, it had some issues. Most importantly, budgetarily, you know, I learned some lessons that I needed to learn on Green Zone or uh, yeah. yeah on Green on Green Zone yeah. But I think that mo what that movie has to say stands the test of time. I, th I definitely do think that. But then, uh, then it was Captain Phillips, wasn't it? After well, that? right, and and so so as you say, Green Zones, twenty ten, only time I think that one of your movies did not make a lot of money. It was hundred million dollar budget, ninety six million dollar gross. But I think people, it's it, I don't know that any Iraq related film has made a lot of money uh it's people are still I, I, I look i made some i made one big error in that movie which is to 
it's a casino business making movies. It's fraught with risk, you know, and you're not going to get all your calls right. And I made one fundamental misjudgment there, which is to decide to make a film at a level, a budgetary level, that was not supportable by its subject matter. I should have, I now see very clearly, and I would never have made that, I would never make that mistake. I should have said, I'm going to make that film, but I'm going to make it at a fifth of the budget. And I don't care how I'm going to do that. That's going to be how I'm going to do it. And that will dictate everything else. That will dictate how we make that movie. But that's, and that was, you know, the, you learn these things. I was coming off the back of, I'd done three, four in a row. And you get just, you've only got to be 1% off and you can make a misjudgment that then you're struggling. But you learn because I think Captain Phillips was not a yeah. size of, well, not of that. From size. then on, yeah. from then on, that is indeed what I've done ever since then. What what is the right number for this film? As best I judge it, and then let's see if the studio agree. And generally, we do agree because I'm tending to be hyper cautious because that's the way you stay working, and it's and that's the, the truth about restrictions, whether they're budgetary or or logistical. And this is something I say when I go and talk to younger directors of films. The box that you're in is your friend. It feels like your enemy because you always want more. You always... But in the end, the box that you're in, provided it can truly be lived with, you know, it's not a ridiculous box, but the box that you're in is the mother and father of your creativity. That is how you will find the solutions that will that will be the making of the movie. But it's interesting that you in some ways sort of dare people in another way with the with a lot of these movies. So like Captain Phillips, this is four years only after the actual events. United ninety three was only five years. Twenty second of July was not much longer. People then assume they say, I know everything about this. Why do I need to see a movie about it. I've just followed the news and all that. And yet they go to it and you have, you always seem to find a way to teach them something or show them something they didn't get in this case, really humanizing in a, in a, in a fair way, the people who were just dismissed as the bad guys. Well, you have to, you have to judge them too. You can't be morally, moral equivalents. I've never believed in whether it's, yeah, obviously the hijackers in '93, or or the pirates in Captain Phillips, or the British art soldiers in, but 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 you could seek to understand. That's a different thing. You can you can judge, but you can seek to understand. And um, uh, but you're right. I, I'm with all these stories. I mean, the roots of them go back to, I suppose, my. 20s when I was in the real world and your job was to find a story and to watch the world in action and find a piece of it that you could tell a story out of and you know I think I said once over here you know that I started on a program called World in Action but in the end as a filmmaker yeah 
all filmmakers do different things and have different pieces and pebbles that they can put in the wall of filmmaking if you're lucky enough. And my small, one of my small pebbles maybe is that, that I make films about the way the world is in action. And Captain Phillips, I felt that although you knew the story, you didn't, haven't lived through it. And if you lived through it, you would see something about the truths of a global, fast globalising world and the tensions and the complexities and the contradictions and the violence implicit in that that would both give an audience a tremendous ride, you know, but a, but a, but a deeply powerful emotional experience too and also make them think. And never more so than at the end there with the the most emotional scene with Tom Hanks, where I don't think he's ever been better. I think it's as powerful a moment as any of your movies have. And it made me hope that you guys would work together again. So seven years later, that happened with with Jason Bourne and 22nd of July in between. So just very briefly, what did make you go back to Bourne after nine years and sort of feeling that there's nothing more to do with that? I think all of us felt we had to give it one more go. I was a bit more reluctant, perhaps, than others. Um, uh, but in the end, you know, you, all, you kind of go, well, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. We must do it. And uh, obviously the studio were very keen, although they had stopped asking, to be fair to them. I think it was very surprising when they got the call saying, OK, we're ready to do it. Uh, look, I knew when I started that film it wasn't, going to be as good as the two that I'd done before. You, you know, you just, it's just, you know it deep. In, that doesn't mean to say you don't work as hard and you don't try desperately. You also know that, you know, that the, uh, we were once kind of the fresh, fresh kids on the block. Now we're going to take some hits because we're coming back. And that's fair enough. You know, I get that. Um, At a time when every other action movie has now copied your way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, uh, but you know, but we, look, I gave it my all, Matt gave it his all. I think there are some great moments in it. I think it's a pretty good Bourne movie. It's, it's not as good, of course, as I think as a couple of the others that came before, but it's still highly enjoyable and it still did, you know, a lot of money and we made it for a very, very good price. Uh, Let's just note that that has the best, I think, car chase scene since the standard bearer. The original is is the French connection. And I thought Chris Rouse did some fabulous, fabulous work, and he, you know, he co-wrote the script. And you know, look, it was a great, fun experience. It was a little bit like the rock and roll band doing the stadium <laughs> reunion tour, you know what I mean? There was an element of that, but but I loved it and I honour it and, um, you know, I, I think the Bourne franchise is great and I'm very, very proud to have played a part in it. But then after that, I wanted to do some different things. That was definitely in my mind. Well, and and just briefly, that, that different thing that was next was 22nd July about the worst terrorist attack in Norway, where in this case you're going there, shooting it in Norway, Norwegian cast and crew essentially almost entirely, again, dealing with terrorism. But I think the question that this one raised even more than United 93, even more than Captain Phillips or Bloody Sunday, is some people felt 
is it dangerous to give a voice, you know, to allow the the bad guy here to essentially air his rationale while, yes, you know, rebutting it. But is there is that in some ways for another nut job going to give them a model of somebody to emulate? And you had an interesting answer to why it was necessary to do that. Well, I mean, rooted in the same approach to, to all these films, that these things are, it's, you know, it's we can't cancel what's already happened. You know, right-wing extremist violence is a fact of our lives, and it, by the way, it's got only exponentially worse since I made that film, nothing to do with that film. It would have been worse, whatever. It was a, you know, a, a profound... Sea change was occurring, uh, driven by population movement, economic failure, and also Islamic violent, you know, terrorist violence, Islamic extremist violence. Um, and that's a lethal cocktail that in the end was itching. You know, you've only got to look, as I did, at the whole antecedents of that, it was going to come. Everybody knew. Every You talk to anybody in the CIA, the FBI, and our security, or anywhere across Europe, they knew it was coming. It just, he was the guy, Brevik, who said, I am going to dare to do this, and he did it because he wanted to raise the standard for everybody else to come and join him. So it's nothing to do with my film, give me a voice. The guy was already... He'd done it. And, you know, you go to Charlottesville, a lot of those slogans, the, the, the white supremacists, they were all Brevik slogans. From Brevik, you know. He, the, 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 the importance of Brevik is not yet understood. He is, and that sounds sacrilegious, but I mean it, he is the patron saint for those guys. He is the guy who dared to do it. And to me... The reason I made that film is because I believed then, and I think it's only truer now, that our societies are facing a profound challenge from right-wing extremism. You can see it in your country right now, certainly in my country and all across Europe and elsewhere. And, and what Norway was, was a petri dish of how we are going to have to deal with this and the mistakes not to make and the and the ways to respond and, and the the reason I told the story of that young man and his family and the lawyer and the legal system and the politician is because there are exemplary elements to how Norway faced that challenge, a grievous, profound challenge akin to 9-11 that we would do well to study. And that's why I made that film, and I'm very proud of it. All right. So at a time when news is being questioned in every sense, everybody, fake news this, fake news that, you have chosen to make a film, again with Tom Hanks, seven years after Captain Phillips, called News of the World, where you're looking back to a time when it was news wasn't as readily available, of course. And here's a guy who travels around reading the news. This is a Western genre that the most American of genres and Tom Hanks, the most American of actors playing the kind of strong, silent type. Now, Bourne didn't always have much to He was always a kind of 
soft-spoken guy too, but I guess I just wonder what for Generally, you. Generally, my films don't don't have lots and lots of dialogue. Yeah, there. yeah, and it's and good because sometimes there's there there is too much uh, in other films. But what for you made you want to uh, to tell this particular story in this particular genre at this particular time? Well, I think I felt that I had. Well, first of all, when I made Twenty Two July. And I, don't, I think it's true of all the films. I don't think I've ever made a film that was nihilistic. And I'm an optimistic person and and uh, not an angry person, if I can put it like that. Um, you know, and I found that young man's struggle to recover from the attack and his family's desperate attempts to show that incredibly inspiring. I found the Prime Minister's attempts to keep his country together inspiring. I found the lawyer's attempts to give this monster effectively a deeply terrible political extremist a fair trial, also hugely inspiring. And But the road to healing through that is necessarily highly limited. But it left me with a great sense that, you know, Brexit had happened in the UK... President Trump had been elected. You know, we were in uncharted waters of division and bitterness and growing worse. And, you know, I've got children. You you dwell on what's the road out of this going to look like? I mean, there's not going to be a road out of this where suddenly this is all reversed. This This is huge sea changes of opinion you know, intense forces at play here. What's the way out of this for our children to inherit a better world? That's Those are the sorts of things you feel. And I find again and again when I think of what I'm going to do next, if I dwell on the world in action, I generally get a feeling or a, best of all, a question. And if I can try and articulate that in my mind turn it over as I walk the dogs and, you know, you think about it. And, of course, you're looking for a story. But generally, a story will come to me. It's it's happened time and time again, you know. And so that was where I was. I want to do a f- film that gets down the healing road. What's that road look like? How are we going to get there? What, what, how can I make a film about that? How can I make a film? I also wanted to do... Something different. I just wanted to do something different. I, I wanted to slow down. I didn't want to keep pushing. You know, 22 July was a much slower film, actually, with the exception of the first 20 minutes. And you hanker after doing something new, you know, and then all of a sudden, a few months later, they sent me the novel and I read it and I thought, well... This story of the lonely newsreader who goes from town to town with a satchel of old newspapers and he reads in an old barn or a dusty square in Texas and he's he's lost everything. All he's got is the ability to tell a story. And that in his own small insignificant way is trying to heal people just through telling a story and it may be local news about the ferry and the or the meningitis epidemic which seemed not as important now as it does in the film then when we shot it you know or he tells stories about the federal news which may be unpalatable to his audience 
or he tells adventure stories from abroad, whatever. But, but he's, in his own small way, trying to heal with the power stories. And I thought, I love that character. And then he meets the mysterious little girl and she's been kidnapped and he's got to try and get her back to her family. And it's really about, that's the healing road. That's the road. They're going down that road in, a, in 1870 at a time when America's bitterly divided and, and they get there and, it, and it, I just thought, I know what to do with this. And I thought, I've never made a family film and you wouldn't think my sensibility would easily lend itself to a family film. This, I thought this will get me to us, you know, I, I, mean, I think this is a family film. It's maybe a bit, you know, uh, it's not like a sort of Disney family film, but it's, but it's a family film. It's, you know, I think right. it you still has your action, take, your shootouts and well, whatever, but in a... But it's got yeah. hope. And heart, and I made I made it. I had mine, and I've got sons and daughters. But my daughters were very much in my mind when I made it, and I wanted to make a film that hadn't had a in that way that Twenty Two July could never have a hopeful end. This could have a truly hopeful, happy end, and and I wanted to do one film that would do that, and and of course western. What's not to love? It's a Western. I grew up with those movies. I'd done John Ford for that Netflix thing, Five Came Back. I don't know if you saw that. And uh, so he must have been in my mind. That was a couple of years before. So it all came together, and, of course, it was Tom. And you go, well, I don't want to do another film with Tom that's like Captain Phillips, that's a ride, because we've got to be different. And, you know, some people I know go, oh, but it's not Captain Phillips. It's not, you know, there's not enough action in it. And you go, well, no, because it's what it is. It's you know, what's going to be different, yeah. Um, all right, well, I want to just, if it's all right with you, spend our last minute, just your first thing that comes to your mind uh, about a few different quick things. Sure. Rapid fire, as we call it. Um, go for it. Do you see the impact of your Bourne films when you go to other action movies? Yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> Thank you for being honest. Uh, I'm sorry. Would you would you ever direct a Bond film? No, not not. Look, this has been misinterpreted. I have the utmost admiration for Barbara and Daniel and the entire Bond franchise. It's not the most successful movie franchise of all time for nothing. It's that because they're brilliant and smart and they make great movies and they work hard and they're fantastic. It's just, Bourne was born in opposition to Bond. And I think probably they would agree it changed Bond at that time and probably shook it up a bit. But you know what? They responded to the competition by taking us to the cleaners. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, they would never ask me, but I wish them well and I wish only good things for them. Will you make another Bourne film ever? I think that's unlikely, but I I am team Bourne to my dying day and I'll always have... I mean, I love that he's still out there, even the last film. Yeah, he's out there and he's a... You know, I, I, I love Bourne because he's oppositional. He's He's... He doesn't work for the man. He's 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 a renegade, and he's 
he knows they're lying to him and he wants to know why. And, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be another Bourne movie, I'm sure. I, I think it would be better that somebody else comes in, somebody young and hungry who's gone, I know how to shoot this, you know, and takes it in a direction that I could never imagine. Will you ever make your MLK film? No. I wrote a script and, look, who wouldn't revere... In actual fact, it wasn't... It was somewhat about MLK, but it was also equally about James L. Ray, really, and the investigation. You know, how they caught James L. Ray. It was a sort of double film. So it was as much about what happened afterwards as the lead-up. But I think that that other filmmakers are better placed than I to make that film and should. Will you be making your 1984 film we've heard about? I would love to do that. There are some pretty significant rights issues, but I would definitely think I might, well, I would like to do that if we could ever sort those out. And finally, this is something that when when the when the craziness at the Capitol was happening this past week, I thought about a lot of things and maybe a hundredth on the list, but I did think about it was somebody is one day going to make a movie about this and who would be the most appropriate person to do it. And I know what I had in my mind. So I went on Twitter and I said, this week on my podcast, I will be interviewing the person who I think is most likely to (laughs) make that film one day. I did not say the name, but it is amazing how everyone immediately responded. You've got Paul Greengrass coming on. That's so great. And so I just have to ask you, would you ever do that? Well, it it crossed my mind too. And it crossed quite a few other people's minds who've been in contact with me. Look, I think that what's interesting is there is a deep crisis in your country and in mine and across Europe. And... In lots of ways, the last two films, I think, in different ways, have tried to address it. Something is struggling to be born, and it's not being born, you know? And all these are morbid symptoms attendant on the failure of of us to, to allow what's coming to be born. We do not know whether what is to be born is to the good or to the ill yet. I think that it will be to the good because I believe in young people and I believe in my children and I believe in their ability to make the world in ways we can't understand. But but I think that is the crisis of which the events of last week are only a prelude, really. I, I was somebody, I can't remember who it was, being interviewed who said that the real question is this, is what we watched last week the end of something or the beginning of something? It's the same thing. Is something being born and is something dying? Which is which is it? Is it the good that's dying and the bad that's being born or the, the very reverse? I turn that over in my mind constantly. I'm not saying that's going to lead me to make a film about those events, but but I'm very, very engaged in in that struggle because I think it's the struggle for our future. Well, I cannot thank you enough for being so generous with your time. I know oh, we went no long. My pleasure. It was really a treat, and uh, congratulations on the on the new film. I, of course, encourage everybody to go check it out, and uh, thank you again. Thanks a lot. See you later. 
Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.